Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Biz. This is Mary Beth Hughes at Lobby, joined by some very special guests today. Uh, we have the, although she doesn't like to be called an expert, but we have a Lobby's energy director, Lauren Haddon, and API's Gifford Briggs along um, for the show today. So we're very excited. Lauren, I'll kick it off to you. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming on with us, Gifford. How's it going over there? It, it's it's wonderful over here in the in the great state of Florida. A little <laughs> bit colder uh, than it should be, but I am I'm missing my friends and and uh, people back in Louisiana. Knowing that it's gumbo weather right now, the heart is breaking even harder. And Mardi Gras season. Did you get to catch up with some friends at DC Mardi Gras? I, I was uh, I was in uh, uh, D.C. for the D.C. Mardi Gras festivities. There were one or two people from Louisiana there that I did get to catch up with. So, <laughs> so look, I wanted to get you on today. We're excited to have you. Um, we recognize there's a lot happening in the inter- in energy industry, and um, you kind of you and API obviously are at the forefront on, of that from kind of more of a national perspective. So just kind of a thousand feet above before we get started, the, the beauty of this podcast is we often have listeners that aren't necessarily as connected and as tied to the energy industry um, as you, your organization is. So if you can just kind of give a thousand feet above understanding of API and kind of what y'all do, um, I think that would be a great place for us to kind of kick it off. Sure. Uh, thank you. Happy to do it and, and happy to, to be on a podcast with my good friends at Lobby. I mean, you know, API and what we do, it's, it's, it's critical that we have partners like Lobby um, throughout the country. And so we really appreciate all the support and the partnership over the years. Um, so the American Petroleum Institute is a, we're, we're a national organization that's been in existence for over a hundred years. Um, and really we have um, two, two, two different functions. Um, we were originally founded as a standards organization. Um, and today we maintain over uh, a catalog of over 700 standards um, covering all aspects of the oil and gas industry. Wow. Uh, in fact, if you go uh, buy a can of motor oil, you'll see that it is um, uh, API certified, meaning that that motor oil was was refined according to a specific set of standards. And we license those standards to university. We've got partnerships um, with Southern University uh, there, there in Baton Rouge, along with other, other universities, HBCUs across the country, as well as other institutions. The other side of what we do, apart from the standards piece, is that we are a national traditional trade association, similar to lobby, representing all aspects of the oil and gas industry, um, both in Washington, D.C., and in states um, uh, uh, across the country. I'm the Gulf Coast Region Director. I cover Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. And so function in many ways like a normal state trade association just from a regional perspective because so many of the issues that the energy industry faces today uh, don't stop at the state lines. They bleed across uh, right. uh, to, to different states. So we try to take and look at things from a regional perspective, uh, and that's my role. So you learn something new every day because I had no idea about API's standards portion of, of y'all's organization. So even I'm learning something new today. Yeah. And, and, you know, look, if you go to Lafayette, Louisiana, most people know API as a standards organization. In fact, my first experience with API um, really goes back to about 1991 working in my dad's pipe yard and the, the pipe was having to be tested um, to API standards in order to be API certified because the companies wouldn't buy or lease the pipe 
um, for my dad's company unless it met those certain um, those certain API specifications. And so I would say the most of the people That's crazy. Um, outside, of, outside of seeing our ads, no API as a standards organization. Love that. Well, you know, recognizing it's kind of, it's an exciting time for the energy industry. And obviously, you know, you and I have, have talked a lot about what we expect and, you know, some call it an energy transition. I like to call it an energy addition and looking kind of future forward as to what we can expect, expect from the oil and gas industry. One thing that I know has come up a lot for your organization and has also come up a lot for our organization and we anticipate continuing to be the case over, you know, the course of the next few years is carbon capture and the way, you know, that technology is kind of changing the landscape of the oil and gas industry, you know, recognizing that it's not a new technology, but it's kind of been more in the forefront and, and a focus of both of our organizations over the last few years. If you can, because you're probably better at it than I am, you, if you can just kind of give our listeners a, another kind of broad look at, at carbon capture and what that means, you know, for, for, for the energy industry. That, I think that's a great place to, to go next. Sure. And, and um, you know, we could do about uh, three separate podcasts just on the, right. on the subject. So uh, but I'll, I'll, oh, Lord. I'll try to condense. <laughs> I'll try to condense it um, to a point where at least it's in, enjoyable for all the listeners. And I'll chime um, in whenever I have some fun thoughts for us. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, carbon capture in, in, in you know, from a, from a very base principle is, is the idea of taking um, carbon emissions um, and then um, either utilizing them. So you hear CCUS a lot. So that would be for to make concrete or asphalt or, uh, for enhanced oil recovery or uh, storage or sequestration. And so in, in the storage or sequestration, which is where a lot of the conversation has been around in Louisiana over the past year, um, the, the emissions that are, that are captured from a, from a refinery or, or manufacturing process are transported to a, a storage facility where they are then injected safely underground far away from uh, you know, any water sources, uh, where we're talking will, like, we're talking like multiple empire state buildings deep just for reference. Correct. Yeah, correct. Correct. So, I mean, in, in many cases, depending upon the geology, it could be, you know, as deep as 5,000 feet, you know, almost a full mile below. And, and it just really depends on, uh, on the geology, but yes, much further away than, than you might, you might think. I mean, our industry is advanced so much where, you know, we used to have 3,000 foot wells and now we're drilling, you know, 15,000 feet deep. The, the technology is not new. Um, in fact, we've been doing um, CO2 injection or storage in Louisiana for the purpose of producing oil um, for well over a decade. In fact, right there in Baton Rouge is one of the largest enhanced oil recovery fields uh, just north in Denham Springs. Um, and that project's been going on without anyone really being aware for well over 10 years. And I think that's an important point because one of the focuses of this session, um, obviously, as new carbon capture industries and, and organizations and companies kind of peg into this industry, it seems as though it's a new technology. And I think a lot of that is just kind of a lack of understanding and a lack of education in the sense that, it's, it's not a new technology. This has been around. This is time-tested. You know, this has been, and not just in Louisiana, you know, across the nation, across the world, this is technology that has been happening. It's just 
become a more rapid speed over the course of the last few years with some of the legislation that's come through. And I think that that's a very important point that sometimes often gets overlooked, that this isn't just, um, you know, all of a sudden new technology that we're all rushing to, 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 to profit off of necessarily. No, that, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the idea of, of, of putting carbon underground um, is not new technology, right? I mean, if you look at enhanced oil recovery, this is something we've been doing for, uh, for years where we pump CO2 underground in order to push more oil up. And, and over at, throughout the process of one of those projects, the CO2 that is being pumped underground um, some of it comes back up and is separated and reused again. But over time, the majority of the CO2 that is pumped in that oil field stays underground. So this is, and there haven't been any issues. And so this right. is, and it's, it's existing technology um, maybe being used for a different application for the sole purpose of sequestering it, not producing oil. Um, but, you know, the, we live in a, in a world where everyone's trying to, you know, they want to use different platforms to, to be able to get their message across. And by saying it's a new technology, they're trying to create uncertainty and panic amongst the, uh, the public. And when in reality, this is something that the industry has been doing for, you know, 30 or 40 years that, that, that Louisiana has gotten multiple oil fields that have been operating safely with this exact same technology. Um, and, you know, again, right, right, right within a few miles of the capital is one of the larger uh, um, sequestration or CCUS uh, facilities in the state. And I think that kind of brings us to another important point in all of this. Obviously, our focus at Lobby has been on the economic and, and obviously the environmental advantages of CCUS technology, but also the economic advantages for Louisiana in the sense that, you know, we're ahead and we'll, we'll talk about primacy and kind of what that means and how all that intersects. But we're ahead of, you know, kind of our sister states in the sense that we have the workforce, we have the pipelines, we have the infrastructure to do these projects and to create these jobs and for the, you know, to create the economic advantages ahead of, you know, states like Texas and other states who typically accelerate and, and move to these things faster. And so a big focus of lobbies last year and and I anticipate again this year is just kind of focusing on that message and making sure people understand. I mean, these are incredible jobs. These are life-changing jobs, life-changing wages for people. And, you know, as long as this technology is instituted safely and effectively and efficiently, I mean, this is a, a life-changing opportunity for the state of Louisiana that, you know, our opinion is we can't afford to pass up and we can't afford to miss because if we miss this opportunity now, those jobs are going to Texas, those jobs are going to Mississippi, those jobs are going elsewhere, and they're not coming back. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the industry is, we're, we're continually, continually evolving. I'll, I'll just, you know, the, 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 the manufacturing, the refining, the chemical industry, we're continuing to evolve. And we have been um, lowering our environmental and carbon footprint since the day the first well began. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that. And CCS is a critical component of how we are going to continue to make the products that our country needs and the world needs and be able, and be able to do it um, in, a, in a more environmentally friendly way. And so we can continue to do that provided that, that we've got, um, you know, the, the regulatory framework to be able to, uh, to get the projects approved. Right. That, that means that, that, you know, that states need primacy. And right now, North Dakota and Wyoming were the first two states to get primacy. It's been a long time since another state was. 
Louisiana was just granted primacy. And what that means hip, hip, uh, for hooray. listeners is, yeah, that means that Louisiana can issue the permits instead of the federal government. Because right now, if, you, if you're not in North Dakota, Wyoming, or Louisiana, and you want to you know, have a CCUS project, you have to go to EPA, to the federal government, to get a permit. And those permit times are, are, are two to three years or longer. That is not a sustainable um, uh, timeline uh, for an industry that's developing. And so now we can go to Louisiana. And besides the, besides the permit being quicker in Louisiana, um, because they're set up to do it, you're going to be dealing with people that know the state. They right. know the people of the right. state. They know the community of the state. They know the geology of the state. And they're closer to the people that are that are going to that are around the project, and they're closer to the elected officials that are going to be putting forth the rules and regulations. So, you know, we want it to be here in Louisiana, where the experts are that understand our state, to be able to permit these projects. Which is why Texas wants primacy. Which is why Alabama wants primacy. Right. Why Arkansas, uh, uh, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, all of these states want to get to where Louisiana is, but Louisiana has the advantage because they're they're there now and they're attracting capital. And you look at a project like Strategic Biofuels in Columbia, Louisiana, this is a multi-billion dollar project in one of the most impoverished uh, uh, communities, not in the state, in the country. And they're going to be bringing, you know, incredible construction jobs, great paying jobs, um, to be able to 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 make advanced biofuels and doing it in a, in, a, in, in in an environmentally friendly manner, and I think that's an important point because you know obviously the the voices that are the loudest are obviously the ones that are are more negative. But as we have conversations across the state and around these communities, and you talk to locals and you talk to you know local governments, there is so the overarching. Uh, narrative from these people is, you know, we are excited and we welcome these opportunities. You know, these are, this is monumental jobs. These are huge wages. It's sales tax, ad valorem taxes. You know, all of this provides for economies in these cities and in these regions that have never seen, you know, 80, 90, $100,000 jobs for, you know, people right out of high school. And and that leads to incredible opportunities. I mean, I was talking to somebody and they were saying, you know, 90% of their parish graduates from high school and then they have to move on because if you want to, if you want a job where you're making over 50 or $60,000, those jobs don't exist there. And, you know, this, it was an Allen Parish and they were saying, you know, this provides an opportunity for these people to stay here, for these, you know, fathers to be home. They don't have to go to work offshore. And I think that's such an important part of this message that often gets lost in the noise in the sense that this isn't, you know, the overarching message isn't negative. If you go into these communities and you talk to people who live in these areas, they are excited for the most part about these opportunities and about the, the change and, and what this means for their, their hometowns. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and, you know, it's, look, it's, it's a lot of our conversations. We kind of look back and, and some of the opposition is very similar to the opposition we heard about hydraulic fracturing the first time. Right. And, some of the arguments are the same. Some of the players are the same. And we saw what hydraulic fracturing did for the Haynesville Shale and those communities and the schools that it's built. And, and, but if you look at it bigger than that, we went from a seven-year supply of natural gas to a 150 to 200-year supply of natural gas 
And because of what happened in the Haynesville Shale, we were able to build LNG facilities that were able to uh, essentially bail Europe out of an energy crisis because of the war with Russia and Ukraine and essentially Europe being cut off from energy. And so that, that little development in the Haynesville Shale led to LNG facilities that was able to, you know, keep the lights on uh, and the heat warming in Europe in a time of crisis. And it's a, it's a, it's a critical development. And I think that we're going to see these same, the same evolution. It's, you know, once CCS begins to happen, people are going to get comfortable with it. They're going to understand it more they're going to know that it's safe. They're going to see that it's safe. And then they're going to see the investment and they're going to see the return investment and what it means not only for the those communities but for the state for our country and then you know ultimately the world which it's almost as if you are looking through the pretend outline that I have in my head because this is a great segue Um, another thing I wanted to kind of get you your opinion on while we have you is the the state of liquefied natural gas LNG obviously recognizing that on Friday Biden announced that he was delaying or consideration the consideration of all new natural gas export terminals in the United States, which I know API came out with a statement and said, you know, this was a win for Russia, a loss for our American allies, U.S. jobs, global climate progress. So, I, you know, we also came out with a statement saying something similar. But again, kind of from a thousand feet above, if you'll just give our listeners kind of an overview of President Biden's decision and what that means. Um, and then also we can kind of talk about what that means for, for national security, Louisiana, um, international security, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, the, you know, President Biden um, essentially stopped, paused, quit. Um, you know, uh, issuing uh, permits for construction of new LNG facilities. Um, you know, we were just talking about the importance of of federal permitting or, or local permitting or state permitting versus federal permitting. Here's another example. Um, right. The president on a whim decides that 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 LNG exports are bad and shuts down new projects one of the you know there's there's projects that were have reached final investment decision that have signed contracts with even um, here in louisiana you know, with, yeah cp2 right right and, and calcium pass too i was just reading an article about it I have a 20-year agreement to provide lng to germany um and you know that project is now put on hold uh because the the president wants to you know take a look at it and And when you put projects like that on hold, I think what people often forget is, you know, those countries still need LNG. So if they're not getting it from us, they're getting it from somewhere else. And a lot of times (laughs) therein lies another problem. You know, when when you think about international security and national security, if they're not getting it from us, they're getting it from other nations who do not exercise the same principles that we do. Well, that's great. That's assuming it's LNG, right? So, I mean, you know, it, just because the president decides that we're not going to build any new facilities and we're going to stop exporting natural gas doesn't mean that Germany's like, well, you know what? I guess we just won't use the energy now. Right. <laughs> right. Shutting down exporting American energy doesn't mean that the world is slowing down. In fact, I mean, every report shows that the demand for energy and oil and natural gas and, and even coal is only increasing. And so and here in the United States, your point about our principles our principles are continually to evolve in producing energy that is needed at, at, at a low carbon um, uh, intensity. And so Clean. you look at natural gas, our emissions as a country are reducing, it, it, you know, and have been for a long time. That's because we've moved from coal 
to clean burning natural gas. We continue to improve our production of natural gas to have fewer methane emissions so that it only makes it better. And we have the ability to export American ingenuity and American progress all over the world, which makes climate better everywhere because we do it better and cleaner than everyone else does. And when we stop exporting American progress, then other countries have to step in and fill the gap that don't have those rules. I can assure you that China is not worried about producing <laughs> LNG um, at the lowest carbon intensity possible, nor are other countries. And ultimately, giant, you know, Germany is going to have to make a decision. Do I get natural gas from, from, from China because I can't get it from Russia anymore? Or we have coal available now. Do we switch back to coal? So none of those decisions that we're, we will be forcing Germany to make by slowing down these projects are, are, are the, is the right decision for the environment. It's not the right decision for Germany's economy, one of our key allies. It's not the right decision for the United States and our, and our commitment to support our allies. And, yes, there are existing LNG projects. This rule doesn't affect the projects that have already been fully permitted or under construction, right, or, or existing LNG exports. But what it means is if this, if this delays it two years, that's just two years further on down the road that when Germany needs that LNG that they're not going to get it or our other allies are going to have it. So we can't keep pushing these projects down the road. They're going to find other, other sources. Right. Um, it's just, it's it's really unfortunate, and it's a huge step backwards um, for the climate. And I think, you know, kind of two points in that. I think, first, it's so important. I think what you said, you know, the fact is LNG, oil and gas, is not going anywhere. So you're either going to get it from the United States, which is, you know, obviously working to produce cleaner energy than anyone else, or they're going to get it from somewhere else. And I also think from an investment standpoint, it's problematic. The reality is these investments have been committed for these LNG projects. And, you know, the return on those investments was, you know, they saw that for a certain number of years to come. And and a two-year pause means, you know, what does that mean for those investments? What does that mean for money that's been committed to these to the to the these parishes in Louisiana that, you know, we're looking for those tax dollars to build roads, build schools, do those kinds of things. So I think, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. It's obviously multifaceted. And I think um, the easy answer is for us to, you know, just turn our heads or for, for people who don't understand to just kind of turn their heads and say, oh, you know, you know, energy and, and, and transitioning and, and clean energy, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is there's just a lot that goes into that. And I, and I think that's why these types of podcasts are so important, because if we can make this bite sized and, and kind of just make people understand that this isn't as simple as, you know, the media or some folks would like to make it seem, I think that that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, the, the, the value chain for the oil and natural gas industry is huge, right? It's not just the person drilling the well uh, or the company drilling the well. It's not the export facility. There's thousands of jobs and small companies, you know, that, that sell this this gizmo or that gizmo or, or um, right. you know, that, that provide this service. And so, you know, you look at an LNG facility, um, like like CP2 or, or or Venture Global's other facility or Chenier or Semper and and you know those amazing facilities that are built in Louisiana, they represent tens of thousands of jobs and years of investment decisions from the from the time the land was leased in the Haynesville shale to the seismic work that gets done to the cleaning of the pad site to the drilling of the well 
to the you know the the the, the construction of the pipelines that move the natural gas from Shreveport, Louisiana, all the way down to the coast. There were refining jobs that were commit that that were that were put together. The, the construction of the facility, the export of the gas. I mean, these these are tens of thousands of jobs that that benefit Louisiana's economy and our country's economy. And a decision like this says we're not worried about those. We're going to keep, you know, that's just, that's, we're not going to export that gas. We're not going to need that gas. We're not going to get those jobs. We'd much rather that it, that, that China do it or someone else. And it's just, it's really unfortunate when we have, you know, so much ingenuity and and technology and progress that we're ready to export to the world that, that we're being told no. And we have a workforce and the infrastructure that's ready to go. You know what I mean? No one does it better. No one understands it more than, than the folks in Louisiana. So I think the reality is every one of those sectors. You... Say that again. I said 100 <laughs> percent. I mean, I, there's there's not LNG facilities and uh, in, in other places. And it's not because they're not on the water. And it's not because it's a lot closer to get LNG out, you know, out, out of other places to get it over to Europe. But the reality is, is you're right. You don't have access to natural gas and you don't have the workforce to do it. And that's one of the things that makes Louisiana so special. So now we just need you to come on bound, bound back, back here and um, sell that message to those who don't necessarily understand it yet. But look, closing thoughts, anything you want to make sure um, we get out to our audience, you know, maybe something we, we haven't hit on yet that um, folks who aren't as connected to the energy industry might um, be privy and, and learn something from? Well, I'll just say this in closing. I'm going to stay here in Tallahassee and continue to fight for the oil and natural gas industry here. But I can do that because I know that Louisiana is in good hands. You've got great leaders um, um, at Lamoga and Loga and Louisiana Chemical Association. Um, obviously, you have an incredible uh, chair of the Energy Committee there at Lobby. Um, here, here. And, then, and, and you know that, that Will Green... Um, is going to do a great job of leading uh, Lobby and that organization forward. And so there's great leadership across Louisiana. Um, the new governor, Jeff Landry, is going to be great. Um, Tyler Gray over the Department of Natural Resources. You know, these are all people that understand and value uh, Louisiana's oil and natural gas manufacturing petrochemical industry. And they're going to continue to do the right things and fight for it. So if I can provide this, some some help and support uh, that they need on, on you know, working with our federal team. I think that's the, the best scenario for Louisiana to move forward. We agree. We're going to go ahead and link to y'all's website, too, when we put this up so that, um, you know, I know y'all have a lot of resources on a federal level that I, I want to make sure we share with our audience. But it is an exciting time to be here, and we look forward to the next time we can get you here for a visit. Gifford, thanks for taking some time out this morning to be with us. Absolutely. See y'all soon. Thank you for having me. Bye.